faith. And I just ask that you would uh, speak through him tonight, Lord, uh, what our ears need to hear. Lord, I pray you you just prime us, give us full attention, uh, just open up uh, sensitivity in our spirits. And uh, I just pray that uh, Andrew would be uh, led by you in his uh, in his own sensitivity and his own understanding of your word. Lord, I pray that you would uh, you would truly speak to us as uh, as your people tonight. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Am I off? It's not here, Sam. Hello. Hello. Am I on? John, John, what do you think? Am I on or what? Mm-hmm. Okay, good. So this sermon is actually inspired uh, by the podcast and a conversation. I'm in the midst of writing a book, so if you could pray for that, that would be great. Uh, so is Shannon, so is Tommy. So, anyway, uh, so I was thinking about Psalm 139. Every time I do that radio show, I always think to myself, ah, I wish I would have said this or, or whatever. So Psalm 139 is interesting, and it's kind of a fake out because I keep saying Psalm 139, so you're turning to Psalm 139, but that's not where we're going to spend most of our time. Uh, but Psalm 139 is going to serve as our introduction uh, because the original language of the, of the scripture, obviously, is not English. Sorry, Stephen Anderson. Only two or three of you know that joke. Only one of you. Okay. Uh, so the original language of the Bible was not English. It was basically a combination of Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And so you actually begin to see some really, really interesting things when you dig into the language. So Psalm 139 has this famous phrase, right? I praise you because I'm what? Kyle's my psalmist. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And so David says, I praise you because you made me fearfully and wonderfully. And you go, oh, that's nice. What does the term wonderfully mean? Well, so I have a Bible, I have a handy Bible dictionary here for some of you who may not know what the term wonderful means. And it's actually very interesting. So here's all the words that wonderful means in the phrase fearfully and wonderfully made, right? Now watch this. To do something wonderful, to be too difficult, to be unusual, to be singular, to make distinguished. So David is saying, I praise you because I am fearfully, and fearfully means carefully. Fearfully means carefully, very easy to to learn, right? Fearfully means carefully. I'm going to know it. Fearfully means carefully. David says, I praise you because when you made me, like you took your time to construct me in the mother's womb, right? And, you know, what's interesting is that when God wanted to create light, what did he do? Blah, light. Right? It doesn't say he fearfully and wonderfully created the sun. You ever thought that through? Like these amazing planets, and you know, I just watched a couple weeks ago with Tanya and Shannon about uh, what is it, the indescribable thing. And Louis Giga was like, Yeah, there's a planet like 60 trillion light years. How would you even know? Like, I had a friend say to me, How does anybody know any of that stuff? They just made that up. I agree. Right, Ian? <laughs> How do you know? But all these like amazing planets and stars, and, and you know, in Genesis it says God created the heavens and the earth, and then in verse 11 says he made the stars also. And then he keeps going on, like it's ridiculous. But you never hear 
anywhere in the scripture where it says he fearfully created the stars. Like carefully created the stars. You never hear that. Or the mountains or any of that stuff. He just speaks and then boom, there it is. But with David, he says, I praise you because you took your time to carefully and meticulously make me. Fearfully. And wonderfully. Meaning, I am singular. I am unusual. There's 8 billion people on the planet. They all have one head, two eyes, ten fingers, ten toes, two legs, two arms. What do you mean you're unusual? What does David mean by I am unusually made or I am singularly made or what? What's he saying? What he's saying is yes, everybody on the outside looks pretty much the same. But there has never been a David like me. And they never will be a David like me after I'm gone. I am singular. I'm unique. You know, in the Bible, God keeps saying all through the Old and New Testament, there is none like me. And David is saying, I praise you because you made me singularly. There will never be another me ever again. And he worships God for that. God puts that in the Bible. Some of us are like too like humble or too pious. You've never get in public and say, there has never been a me, and there will never be a me again. Everybody would start talking, how dare you say something like that? It's the Bible, I don't know what to tell you. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. This is why abortion is such a horrible tragedy. Right? Because we are eliminating people who we will never, ever, ever replicate. They're human beings, but there's never going to be one like them ever again. Fearfully and wonderfully made. Good. That's the introduction. Let's go to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. So here's, here's, here's something that we all gotta, we're all trying to figure out, especially as Americans, this whole concept of self-esteem. And uh, the, the big movement of self-esteem, especially in psychology, late 80s, early 90s. And we had this discovery as Americans. Whoa, people need to feel good about themselves. And so everything was about building your self-esteem. And so your self-esteem is your self-estimation, like you look in the mirror or you look in the mirror of your soul, like who am I, what is my worth, what is my value? And so the big self-esteem movement, late 80s, early 90s, and then when you went to public school, we inherited this, everybody was talking about your self-esteem. Who remembers that? People were talking about self-esteem. Okay, uh, Jeremy's like, eh. Okay. And then the Christian church did what? We went, boom, like we always do with everything. You should worry about your self-esteem. Self-esteem is of the devil. Who's heard that before? Self-esteem is bad. Now it's the big homie Paul Washington. Self-esteem is terrible. You're a worm. You're horrible. You should just worry about God. I, I, I'm sure I've said it because I'm a pretty extreme guy. Well, I think David in Genesis 1 gives us a good balance, right? I don't esteem myself from myself. I esteem myself from outside sources. We had this conversation. It is impossible to have a self-understanding completely within yourself. You have to get that from an outsider. And there's really only two options. You're either gonna get your esteem of yourself from the world, or you're gonna get it from God. Very simple. If you get it from the world, you will fall into one of two ditches. You will become extremely prideful. 
because the world will tell you that if you hit certain parameters that you're an awesome person that carries a ton of value, whether it be power or how you look or how much money you make, you will become eminently prideful. If you take your cues from the world, you will also become intolerably despairing. You will despair all the time if you take your cues from the world. Why? Because if you don't happen to hit certain physical or material requirements, then they will say you do not have any value. So you cannot get away from the concept of self-esteem. The question is, where are you going to get your esteem of yourself from? From the world? From human beings? From the perspective of the flesh? Or are you going to get it from God? Well, in John chapter 9, we run into a guy who probably all his life was told that he carried little to no value. Probably. Um, John chapter 9, Jesus is on his walk and they run into somebody. The disciples run into somebody. Verse not, chapter 1, chapter 9, verse 1. <laughs> I'm, I'm secure in my, uh, in my esteem of myself, so I don't, I don't worry about that. All right. He passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Blind from birth. You say, why did you start, start with Psalm 139? This is why. He was blind from birth. So who do you blame for that? You know, if, if he was uh, playing baseball and somebody, you know, and he caught a fastball to the eye, you'd say, you know, that's tough luck. This dude is blind from birth. Well, Psalm 139 says that he is fearfully and what? Wonderfully made. Fearfully rides with what? Carefully. Do you, you understand what just happened? I am saying that God carefully decided that as he was knitting this individual together, he was going to be knitted together without the ability to see. That's what I just said. Does this trouble anyone? Troubles me. you got a bunch of theologians here. This is your, uh, your unblind privilege. This dude was born blind. Psalm 139 says that God carefully and wonderfully made this guy. So look what the disciples say. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now this is an insane question. I said the guy was blind from birth. Isn't that what I said? They said, who sinned? This man or his parents? You know what that means? They're saying, what did this guy do in the womb to deserve being born blind? What did he do in the womb to deserve uh, being born blind? Now, the commentators say that uh, the Jews kind of had a theology around this, that you could sin inside the womb and that God could punish you right out of the get-go. So anytime you see somebody in a horrible situation, what is our first instinct? It's to blame. He's saying, who is to blame for this guy's situation? Because here's, what, here's the math that was going on in their head, okay? Psalm 139 says they're fearfully and wonderfully made. Okay, God is sovereign. God wasn't surprised that this dude was born blind. He must have done something to deserve this. Or 
His parents must have done something, and God is not punishing his parents through his blindness. There's always somebody to blame. Any, look, anytime you run into a situation where somebody runs into a hard providence, this is what the Puritans used to call it, a hard providence. Anytime, why are you in the living situation that you're in? Why were you born with certain disabilities? Why were you not born with certain abilities? Why were you born with certain parents? Why were you born with certain children? What is this the punishment on me? No, kids, you're not a punishment on me. You're a blessing. All three. Crazy parents say, say things like that. But you see the point. Anytime you run into a hard providence, the first thing that we do as human beings is who is to blame for this? Like all that anger and frustration that comes with hard providences, we don't know where to put it, so somebody must be to blame. So the disciples are asking Jesus, who is possibly to blame for this predicament? Many of you, at another point, many of you, you, you answer the first way. I blame myself. Some of you blame yourself for everything. You apologize for everything. You apologize even when you didn't do anything wrong. Just apologize all the time. I saw, I saw a, uh, it was a pretty heartwarming video actually. This guy was digging through the trash. Dude went up to him and said, yo man, get yourself a lunch. Boom, he gives him 20 bucks. The guy starts crying. Gets emotional. And the dude said, go get yourself a lunch. And then he gives him another 20. Hey man, tomorrow, go get yourself a lunch. I don't want to see you in the garbage, ever. Dude's crying and then he says, I'm sorry, I'm crying. Guy goes, why are you apologizing for crying? This is how some of you are. You answer the first way, I did something. Some of us are so irrational that if we were born blind, we would say this. We said, I must have done something in the womb. You know, the kid who punches in the, uh, in the ultrasound, I, I punched my mom in the tummy, and now God struck me with blindness. Like, some of you are that crazy. And we gotta ask ourselves the question, like, why? What is behind the impulse to blame ourselves all the time for everything? Now, everybody that knows me knows I'm the responsibility guy. Take responsibility for your actions. You know, I had a conversation with one of my uh, supervisors. We had it out. You know, we had a boxing match over the thing. You need to take responsibility. I'm good. Take responsibility for your actions. But some of you are crazy. Apologize for everything. You didn't do anything wrong. Other people do craziness, you blame yourself. Other people do crazy, sinful actions, you blame yourself. Why do we do that? Here, here's one answer. If I am to blame for this horrible outcome, that gives me some level of control. Because when you apologize for something, you are saying, I will do better next time. So I can control the outcome. If I take responsibility for everything, even when I'm not the wrong one, I can take responsibility and somehow, some way, control the outcome the next time. You know, we, we did this in the hood. You'd be on the train and somebody would randomly get their face sliced open. Just randomly, for no reason. You know what we would say? Well, that's that guy's fault. He should have been doing that, da 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 You know why we did that? Because we didn't want to deal with the reality that at any given time, somebody could randomly do that to us. So we blamed him so that we could give ourselves the illusion that we could control the outcome the next time we're on the train. So many of us 
when we have, when we're faced with these hard providences that we can't control or people that we can't control, we take the blame on ourselves to give us some sort of control over the situation because we feel like we're being victimized by life. And the only way to take control of the situation is to blame ourselves. Here's the other thing. We blame other people. Look, the parents' fault. I'm the way that I am because of my parents. My parents sinned, so now I'm born blind. My parents sinned, so now I'm a horrible, sarcastic person. My parents sinned, and so this is why I can't love people properly. My parents did this, so now I'm doing X. It's my parents' fault. I mean, how many of us have said that in one way or another? This is about 80% of rock and roll music, is blaming your parents for all of your faults. Now look, I inherited my eye color from my parents. I inherited my height, unfortunately, from my parents. I inherited a sinful nature from my parents. But I did not inherit my sin and my issues from my parents. At some level, we got to take responsibility for what we've done. But what happens? Anytime we're facing something difficult, somebody has to be blamed. So the question is always, whose fault is it? Now watch Jesus' mastery. See, they, they say Jesus is a rabbi. No rabbi means teacher. He's still teaching. Many times Jesus teaches us in what he does not say as much as in what he does say. Now here's what Jesus does say. It was not that this man sinned or his parents. So Jesus is saying, you guys are asking the wrong question. The man was not born blind because of some direct sin of this guy or his parents. You know, some of you, you're afflicted with certain things or you're in some horrible life situation and it wasn't your fault and it wasn't your parents' fault. You say, well, who can I blame? I want somebody to blame. Where can I put the blame? Jesus is going to show you. But I want you to notice something. I want you to know something very important. Listen to what Jesus does not say. Jesus does not say, and by the way, God had nothing to do with this. He doesn't say that their assumption that there was a divine purpose behind why this guy was born blind had nothing to do with God. And by the way, many times we try to get God off the hook. Say, God had nothing to do with this guy being born blind in any way, shape, or form. We live in a fallen world, and bad stuff happens to good people. That's usually the response that we give to people. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't say God had nothing to do with it. What Jesus says is the reason this guy was born blind wasn't a direct correlation of his sin or the sin of his parents. This is very, very important. Jesus maintains that God sovereignly constructed this individual in the womb the way that he was, but he explicitly denies that it was connected to some horrible sin. So he goes, we're going to take the blame card off the table. I wonder how different our lives would be if we would just take the blame card off the table. I, I, look, if somebody punches you in the eye, it's obviously their fault, okay? Like, I don't take the blame card off the table. Eh, don't be dumb. Okay, if somebody punches you in the eye, the blame card is on the table. I'm talking about the themes of your life that you can't control. 
Stop blaming yourself all the time and stop being so quick to accuse and blame other people. And maybe we start asking different questions. Jesus took the card off the table. He says, it wasn't this, that this man sent or his parents. Then that, that now we're still left with a question. Then why, oh why, Jesus, was this man born blind? But that the works of God might be displayed in him. Well, the hard providence that this man had to deal with his entire life. He was born blind, never saw the sun. Never saw kids running around playing with each other. Never saw the smile of his mother. Never saw his dad being proud of him when he could walk. Jesus is saying, when this guy was being constructed in the womb, God specifically did this so that the works of God might be displayed in him. He said, man... That's, that's mean. That's really inconsiderate of God. And I was having this discussion a couple days ago. I said, I, I want my Christianity to function in the real world. I don't like giving people little platitudes and little phrases that don't mean anything and pat them on the head and send them along. Some of you have had things happen to you that you had no control of horrible things. And to this day, you're dealing with it. I'm not going to tell you that God was up in heaven and he was watching CNN and that horrible thing happened and you had no idea what was going on. Can't do that. I don't believe that. Now, there are some people that will tell you that. They're called open theists and they believe that God doesn't know what's going to happen in the future. I saw one of those guys on YouTube. He says, God was just as surprised as you were. Well, I don't know. His God might have been surprised, but that's not the God of the Bible. Here, Jesus asks, Jesus tells us to ask a different question. When you run into the guy that's born blind, how about we just take the blame thing off the table and ask a different question? How can the works of God be displayed in me through this affliction? That's the question to ask. The question to ask is, Jesus is saying the works of God might be displayed in this guy. So if I am fearfully and singularly made, if he carefully made me this horrible height, if he carefully made me with my horrible voice and cannot sing, if he carefully made me with my disabilities, I have many of them, how can the works of God be displayed in my body? I don't need to blame my dad for being short. I'm being funny, but many of you, you know, like I said, you had serious issues. But if, if you take the blame game off and say, why did God make me this way? How can I serve his purposes with my issues? That changes everything. I wonder, this particular guy, because they're talking about this dude, and he's right there, and uh, they're talking about him like he's not around, which happens to a ton of disabled people, by the way. They don't get the respect as if they're actual human beings. So they're talking about this dude like he's a theology question in a, in a, in a class, and he's right there. 
And so he might be asking this question himself. And all his life he has probably heard either A was because he's sitting in the womb or B is because his mom. And Jesus comes with a different answer. So now he's kind of like leaning, like, okay, well, this is different. This is different. Look what Jesus says. Verse 4, we must, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Okay? What Jesus is saying is, hey, the ability to walk around with me on the planet Earth in my physical form and healing people is short. Jesus knows he's probably got about eight months now from when this, this situation happened. So he's thinking he's got a clock in his head. He's like, I got eight months. I'm the light of the world. Time is short. You know what this means? As long as you spend blaming someone or figuring out who to rightly place the blame on and the percentage of blame that your parent has and your dad has and your whatever, to the degree that you're spending time trying to figure that out, you have just lost time to work the works of God in your body. Jesus is saying, we don't have an infinite amount of time to engage in this debate. Time is short. Like, do you know how long you have left on this planet to do the works of God in your body? You don't know that. Jesus is, Jesus is, now see, the thing about Jesus is he knew he had the clock in his head. God was like, hey, he, the clicker was in his head the whole time. I just watched this movie a couple of weeks ago. It was, uh, we got the Dunkirk. And one of the themes of the movie was you kept hearing this ticking clock in the background throughout the entire movie. And it was there for like suspense or whatever. It was a horrible, horrible thing because you're always on edge in the movie. Okay? Jesus had a ticking clock in his head. Do you? Because I'll tell you, the, the, the effect of that clock on the movie was like you were just like, ah, everything became super important. Because somewhere along the line, you knew the time was going to run out for one of these characters. So do you have that clock in your head? If you had that clock in your head, I promise you, God can tell you, hey, you're going to die on September 27, 2017. I guarantee you, you spend a lot less time arguing about who to blame for all of your problems and more time trying to figure out how you can use everything in your power and your possession to bring glory to God. Like, you really want to stand before God and say, God, you gave me uh, 32 years on this earth and I figured it out. And God said, you figured it out? What did you figure out? I figured out who's to blame for all my problems. <laughs> it was hard. You gave me a Bible. You gave me all these things. I sat and figured out who was to blame, when they did it, what they did to me, and how it affected me for the rest of my 32 years. <laughs> you want to have that conversation with God? Because many of us live that way. Try to figure out who's to blame. Say, God, I apologize 8,000 times. Because I'm to blame for everything. You think that's a good conversation to have either? You see, to the degree that we're wasting blaming ourselves or blaming other people, time is ticking 
as far as what we can do to bring glory to God. Jesus is saying, hey, this debate is nice, it's fun, but it's a waste of time. We don't have forever. Verse 6, having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. <laughs> now, you know, can you imagine you're blind? These people are talking about you impolitely. And then all of a sudden you hear, <laughs> and then the guy's smarting your face all with mud. I'm just, I'm grossed out. <laughs> you're like, what is happening right now? Like, you're this guy. First of all, these people are rudely talking about you. He's probably used to that. Then Jesus comes with a different angle. You probably haven't heard him before. That's awesome. And then now there's spit and dirt on your face. Now you guys know the story. You know what's going to happen. Tell me what's going to happen. He's going to get unblind. He's going to get unblind. He's going to get healed. Okay? You know that. He doesn't know that. I feel like they were making fun of me. Smearing that on my face. Yeah. That's like, now go wash. Oh, okay. They're, they're mocking me. Yeah. This is nasty. How much lower can I get? There goes the rest of my self-esteem. You know the, the very thing that you think is, is dishonor being piled on you? What if it was God's way out for you? Like, what if that's God's way out for you? See, that spit and the mud being smeared all over his face, that was God's way out for that guy. The very thing that if you just looked at it naturally, if you didn't know who Jesus was, if you didn't know what was going on, you'd say, whoa, this guy really sucks to be him. Blind, poor, nobody around, no family. People talk about you like you're not there, and now they're spitting on you. Good guy. Poor him. Poor him. You know, another thing we do wasting our time, we feel sorry for ourselves. Oh, we just got dishonored. Now look. People are horrible on this planet. They will do terrible things to you. But we have a sovereign God. And God can turn things around like you wouldn't believe. As a matter of fact, it is a principle of Scripture that the things that are used by the devil to dishonor you, to hurt you, are actually there in the hands of God to actually give you honor, give you glory, exalt you at the right time. At the right time. How much you want to bet that the devil was next to that guy going, look at this man, poor Ah! But keep in mind, you're going to see later on in the story, this guy doesn't know who Jesus is. He's blind, remember? He didn't even know who healed him initially. You know the hand of God in your life that is working? Sometimes you don't even know it's him. Sometimes you don't even know when Jesus has his hands all over your face. I bet you anything. And anybody in this room right now, if I said, if you could have traded places with this guy in this instance, would you do it? Yes! Are you kidding me? Have Jesus? Have his hands on? Yeah, dirt? Whatever! Everybody would do that! 
you do have Jesus' hand all over your face. Right now. He's working right now in your life. It's just you're too blind to recognize it. Why does he make mud with the saliva? Look, then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. John is a very subtle author, and I believe he used the word anointed on purpose. Uh, I think it was you. You just talked about the woman anointing Jesus' uh, feet with the, with the uh, oil there. So he's anointing. Now the term anointing, the term Messiah actually means what? The anointed one. That's what Messiah means. And in the Old Testament, when you wanted to honor somebody and set them apart for a special mission, you anointed them with oil. The oil was actually very fragrant, so you'd have this oil stain on you. Like, what happened? I just got anointed. I'm your king, by the way. Give me all your money. So Jesus is anointing this guy with mud. What is happening? Well, number one, uh, he essentially, remember in creation, he created, he created Adam out of the dust of the earth. Right? And so there he is. <laughs> And he says, man, I'm going to create your eyes out of the dust. I'm going to recreate your eyes out of the dust of the earth. I'm going, to re I'm going to give you sight out of the dust of the earth. I'm going back to when I made your first parents. And number two, I'm going to anoint them. I'm going to set you apart with this creation mud. And actually, the very thing that looks like it's dishonoring you is actually me commissioning you and setting you apart and sending you off on mission before you even know who I am. Many of you have been anointed and set apart for mission before you even met the Lord. I was. I mean, I'm not going to get into it, but all of you have. I have theological reasons for saying that. Talk to me now. So he anointed this dude and set him apart. Yeah, you're blind. You're a nobody according to these people. But wait till Jesus spits on you. You, well, you watch. All right. Verse 7. And he said to him, finally Jesus talks to him. Go wash in the pool of Siloam. Which means what? What does Siloam mean? Scent. Siloam means scent. Go wash in the pool called scent. You think, you think that was a coincidence? Why is he washed in the pool called scent? Because Jesus is sending this guy to bear witness. We're going to see that in a second. Jesus is completely sovereign. This guy's healing was not just about this guy's healing. This is a problem sometimes with healing ministries. Is they make the healing just about your healing. Like the healing is the goal. The goal of the healing is to be sent. Why do you want to be healed from whatever affliction you have? So you can stop being afflicted. You don't want to go anywhere. You just want to not be afflicted. You don't want to be blind. You don't want to be miserable. You don't want to be depressed. You don't want to be filled with the blank. Well, I love you. God knows I love you. But God has a bigger agenda for you than you have for yourself. This man was born blind for a purpose and he was healed for the same purpose. 
The years of his blindness were necessary, and his healing was necessary for the same purpose. He heals him to send him. So what does this guy do? He went and washed and came back seeing. Now this is interesting because you and I both know Jesus could have said, Kazam, and the guy would have been healed. That happened, right? The guy was over in another town, and Jesus says, okay, I'll go over there, and the, the centurion says, nah, man, just say the word. And Jesus says, all right, word, he's healed. So we know that this guy didn't need to do any washing to be healed. Why make this guy go and wash his eyes to be healed? You ever thought of that? Kylie, you've read the story a million times. You ever thought of that? Why did Jesus put this guy through all this? Listen, here's, here's a couple reasons. Number one, ultimately, I don't know. I don't know. The mind of Christ is extremely deep and complex. I'm sure there's millions of reasons why Jesus did that. And we'll find out when we see him. But here's a couple. Number one, it is an act of obedience. It is an act of obedience. Because I don't know you from Adam. You spit on the ground. You smeared the thing on my face. And by the way, Jesus doesn't tell him. Look. <clears throat> he says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Jesus doesn't say, go wash and you'll be healed. Did you notice that? He doesn't say, you're going to be healed. All he said is, go wash. Yeah. Now, now, some of us, we got to know, like, What's going to happen after we obey? Jesus says, hey, man, I want you to do this. And you're like, okay, Jesus, sounds good. Why, though? And Jesus is like, I'm not going to tell you why. Just go do what I told you to do. I've had people say, you know, God's not answering this prayer. Like, what do you mean? Like, it's unclear what you need to do? No, I know what I need to do. I just need to know why. I need to know what's going to happen. And Jesus is like, no, you don't need to know what's going to happen. You don't need to know that. All you need to know is do what I tell you to do. I'm going to do all these inexplicable things in your life. When you get a command from Jesus, how about we just obey what he says? I had a friend of mine. She's working on some discipling somebody, and, and they're having this big debate about uh, you know baptism. I mean, do you know why we have to be baptized? I mean, I'll get the water and its things and then, but why do we have to be baptized? You know, some things are just as simple as obey. Jesus said it, do it. So it's simple obedience. What is the line? A simple obedience is going to change the world or something like that. I don't know the lyrics of the song, but it's something like that. Simple obedience, right? Simple obedience that we're learning from this guy. Now look, this is a guy that is so desperate, so desperate that he will basically do anything. Because Jesus didn't say, by the way, I'm Jesus, I'm the Messiah. And he also didn't say, you're going to be healed if you do this. But I think this guy understood that something unusual was happening in his life. So he goes and washes him. And then John says, he came back seeing. Just came back seeing. Verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, isn't this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some says, it is. Others says, no, but he is like him. And he kept saying, I am the man. Now we're starting to see some dots connect. God purposely put this dude in that city, blind from birth, so that all those people around could know that's the blind beggar. 
They didn't name him, by the way. They didn't say, isn't this Joe who's blind from birth? Is this not the man who used to sit in bed? They didn't even know his name. They didn't even know his name. So he doesn't say, I'm Joe. He says, I'm the man. Because he's like, look, I know, I know my place in society. I know that you guys don't value me, so you don't know my name. But I'm telling you, I was the one. I was just me. I was blind. And the people can't believe it. Some of them are saying, this can't you He looks like him, but he's not the guy. Like some of you, you get converted, you meet Jesus, he finally gives you eyes to see, and your friends are like, who are you? Don't even know who you are anymore. Like, we should be so unrecognizable pre- and post-conversion that these debates happen among the people that used to know us. Or are you just like completely recognized, oh yeah, that's you. That's you. You should be completely unrecognizable. God put you exactly where he put you, and he put you he, around the people that he put you with for all your life, so that when he gives you eyes to see, you live a life that is so different than the way you were before that these debates begin to happen among the people that used to know you. Is that happening? Like, we know that sanctification is gradual. Jesusification is gradual. Like, we're gradually getting there, but there's also a part where it's radical. And you ought to be completely different. You should sound, talk, anything the same once you meet Jesus. And I'm not talking about works righteousness. I'm talking about the difference between a seeing person and a blind person. A blind person runs into poles and can't walk around without assistance. There, there are things that you can do now that you can see that you didn't do before when you were blind. Like a seeing person isn't trying to be a seeing person. And you didn't wake up today and say, okay, I'm going to try to live like a seeing person. You're just naturally a seeing person. So on a spiritual level, there are things that you should do or not do simply due to the fact that you're a seeing person. I was talking to somebody today who was struggling before the, the, the service. They're struggling with stuff. And in their estimation, they're a very weak Christian. I can tell. She could tell me how terrible of a Christian she was. And she's like, I was in so much trouble today that I was in the middle of work and I just put my head down and started praying. I love So I just started praying right in the middle of work because I was just so beat up. And the people at work are like, are you praying right now? Leave me alone, I'm going to talk to Jesus. She, weak, in her own estimation, plodding along to be like Jesus, but you and I both know that it's unbelievable to stop what you're doing in the middle of work and put your head down in a crowd full of people and pray. Because you know that your only hope is Christ. That's what a seeing person does. That's the difference. You see she wasn't trying. She just sees Jesus as her only hope. So she puts her head down and prays. She's a bad day at work. I don't care if my pagan friends are around me. They're not going to help me. See? So now here's the debate. This can't be the guy. I'm telling you, I'm the guy. It's me. So they said to him, well, how do your 
eyes open. Now, this question is going to get repeated over and over and over and over again in this, in this passage. How are your eyes open? He answered, the man they called Jesus. See, the man called Jesus, a little bit, the man called Jesus. When I say he didn't know Jesus, this is what I mean. The man called Jesus. Like, I wouldn't say, who's that? Oh, the man called Brian. You don't say that about people that you know. You say that about people you've heard of, but you don't say that about people that you know. The man called Jesus made mud anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. I obeyed him, now I can see. They said to him, where is he? Look what he responds, I don't know. Don't know where he is. This guy has no idea where Jesus is. All he knows is that he can see. They brought the Pharisees they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the money over his eyes. Now, <laughs> one of the reasons that Jesus made mud was that one of the laws that the Pharisees added onto the Bible, it wasn't in the Bible, but they added it, was that you could not make mud on the Sabbath. Okay? So think this through. Jesus, knowing it's a Sabbath, makes mud to heal the guy. Knowing full well it's going to bring this guy who doesn't know anything about the Pharisees and their religious meticulous laws into conflict with the experts in the Bible. So Jesus is about purposefully brings this dude who knows nothing into conflict with the Pharisees. Purposely. He did the same thing in John chapter 5, by the way. He told the guy that was on the ground, he said, pick up your mat and walk on a Sabbath. Jesus was constantly poking these Pharisees in the eye. Because he loved them. He did. It was a bad law. He should have made that law. God didn't make that law. Okay? So Jesus purposely pokes him in the eye because he loves him. But he also says, okay, who am I going to pick to go toe to toe with these Pharisees? John the Baptist, that's a big famous guy. No, he's got his head cut off. Can't use him. Paul, not yet. I am going to send Paul after the Pharisees eventually, but right now Paul is too busy being an awesome Pharisee himself. Can't use him. Blind guy from birth who couldn't read the Torah. Couldn't read one word of the Torah because he's blind. That guy. I'm going to send that guy to go into conflict with the Pharisees, the most powerful people in the area. Watch what happens in this conflict. Verse 15, so the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, I wash and I see. This guy is a very simple guy. He said, he put mud on my eyes, I wash and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others says, how can a man who's a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So here's this guy, he's kind of like with his hands to the side. I put mud on my eyes, I wash, and I see. And then the Pharisees say, well, this guy, he can't be from God. He's doing work, but he's, he broke our rules. And we know that if you break our rules, you can't be from God. Be careful about, about extra rules that you put on people. If you have convictions, watch this. If you have convictions that God specifically gave to you, 
Own them and live in it. This is a glorious thing between you and God. But don't impose your convictions onto other people. Don't do that. Because what happens is you begin to equate the word of you with the word of God. Those aren't the same thing. Those aren't the same thing. Now, somewhere along the line, if these Pharisees had a personal conviction that they could make mud on the Sabbath, well then good for them. Don't make mud on the Sabbath. But you can't put that onto other people. Well, that's what they did. And they say, this guy is a sinner. He can't be from God. And the other Pharisees say, well, how, is that? How, how in the world did he heal a guy born blind if he's not from God? So now they're debating. You see the genius of Jesus Christ. So now, not only is he bringing this guy into conflict with them, they're now in conflict with each other. Jesus is forcing them to handle this question. Who is Jesus? This is, this is brilliant on Jesus' part. So they said against the blind guy, what do you say about him? Since he has opened your eyes, how does the man respond? He's a prophet. That's all he knows. Hey, all, all the stories he's heard since he was a kid, it was that the prophets did miracles, Moses did miracles, Elijah did miracles. So at this point in this guy's life cycle as a Christian, quote unquote, what he knows of Jesus is that he's a prophet. Right now this guy's a Muslim. Because the Muslims believe that Jesus is a prophet. Wait a second, Andrew. You just said that Jesus sent this guy. Yeah. Before he was converted. Mm -hmm. Jesus is setting this dude up as a witness for him prior to his official conversion. He doesn't know who Jesus is. He doesn't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. He called him that man Jesus. He also doesn't know who Jesus is theologically. He calls him a prophet. We know good well that Jesus is way more than a prophet. But just the same, Jesus is sending this guy. You know, the closest analogy I have of it is Chloe, where we, we brought Chloe along with us to the abortion clinic prior to her conversion. And halfway through, I was sitting there going back and forth to somebody, and I turned around and Chloe's like going in. <laughs> She's not even converted yet. And she's going in, arguing, hey, I don't think we should kill this kid. I don't think this is a very good idea to kill children anymore. This is bad news. Prior to her conversion, this is the way of Christ. Now watch this. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. So their only explanation is, you're lying about being born blind. We don't believe you. Now keep in mind, in verse 13, it says, they, that means the people of the city brought the, the Pharisees to this guy. So initially, it wasn't only the, the, the guy that was bearing witness, it was the people that brought the Pharisees that were bearing witness, still don't believe it. Now, why would they come up with a story like that? See, this is the heart of unbelief. An unbelieving person is going to hold on to unbelief with everything they have. Don't ever be fooled by people that tell you, oh, you know, if there was just enough proof of Christianity, I believe. You know, we were watching this movie, A Case for Christ, together. We had, a, we had a cell movie night. And it shows the story of this guy who keeps hearing about all these proofs for Christianity. And I loved the movie because throughout the movie, the people that he would talk to that were offering proof were saying to him, do you actually want to believe, or are you just, what are you trying to do here? And it was brilliant because 
his conversion happened due to a heart change, not a mind change. You can see throughout the movie that his mind was being, he was getting torn to shreds. But it was his heart that kept him in unbelief. That's a very accurate depiction of the human heart. These Pharisees are not going to believe in the entire village says that this guy was born blind. Verse 19. So they asked the parents, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor we do know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. So the parents are saying, man, we know, we know that's our kid. We also know he was born blind. Anything after that is up to him. He's on his own. Now, why or why would the parents respond that way? Well, John tells us, verse 22. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. What does this tell you about this dude's relationship to his parents? Basically, this is what happened. They essentially knew that it was Jesus that opened the eyes of their son, but they didn't want to go anywhere near that because they didn't want to get kicked out of the synagogue. So they left that up to their son. You get kicked out of the synagogue. Being part of the synagogue wasn't like you, you went to synagogue, like you go to church once a week or something like that. The synagogue was the center of life. It was the center of everything. So if you got kicked out of the synagogue, you're basically an outsider in the community, like a blind beggar. See what happened? They're basically saying, look, dude, you're used to being on the outside. You're used to being a beggar. You're used to that. We don't want to pay that price, man. We, we, we grew up comfortably. I mean, it was inconvenient that you were blind. But we're not trying to live like you. We're not trying to live like that. You're already used to that, so you handle it yourself. You're of age. Some of you, your parents are horrible to you. Some of you, your parents let you take the fall for things that they should have bore with you. But what we're going to see in the next few verses is even that horrible treatment by his parents was part of how God was going to use this man to glorify his name and give the most beautiful testimony of faith that we've ever heard ever, all time in Christianity, ever. Now watch. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God! This is ironic. We know that this man is a sinner. Now give glory to God, if you remember, was a phrase that Joshua used in the book of Joshua when he was about to stone Achan to death. Give glory to God basically means tell the truth. So what they're saying is, tell the truth, come clean, and let us know that you're lying about the whole story. We know that this man is a sinner. They knew no such thing. Religious people know stuff about people all the time that they have no business, quote, knowing. You don't know the heart of anybody. You barely know your own heart. How do you know the motives of other people? You've been deceived by your heart 5,000 times today. I hope you know that. If you don't know that, it's because you're really deceived. But religious people always got this eye, and they know what's happening there, even though they don't talk to the people. 
They don't talk to him. They never talk to him. But they know what's happening. We know this guy's a sinner. Allahu Akbar. We know he's a sinner. Tell us the truth. Verse 25. Whether he's a sinner, I do not know. This guy's saying, I don't know. What do I know? I'm just a guy born blind. See what happens? Like you hit a certain point in your religiosity and your whatever that you know everything. And here's a simple guy saying, I don't know if he's a sinner or not. And in that statement, this guy is much closer to the truth than all the religious people. Be careful. You know, God has made Christianity very simple for us and we complicate it. The only thing that we can judge is a person's actions. I can't judge a person's heart. I can judge their actions. So I do with my kids. I judge your actions. I can't judge your heart. Whether or not you're a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, watch this. That though I was blind, what? Now I see. Has there ever been a testimony of faith greater than that ever in the world? I once was blind, now I see. You can't argue with the results, is what this guy is saying. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open his eyes? He answered them, I told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You also want to become one of his disciples? Woo! This guy is completely impatient and watch this. He is not intimidated by these Pharisees at all. At all. Why is he not intimidated? Because the worst that they could do is exclude him from the synagogue, which is the way he grew up his entire life anyway. You see the brilliance of God. The fact that he was born blind not only makes him a testimony because he can see, but it also gave him the emotional fortitude to be able to look those dudes in the face and say, I don't care what y'all think. I'm not worried about y'all at all. Some of you are so worried about what other people are going to think of you. And some of you are not. Some of you grew up in horrible, terrible circumstances. You, 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 you grew this sort of like rough exterior, Ian, where you're like, whatever, man, I'm going to say what I believe. Boom, earth is flat. I don't care. <laughs> say what you want. I grew up in downtown Lewiston. <laughs> Let me look down on me all you want. You're on Facebook. Who cares? You see, some of us need to get some, some spine. You've been coddled your entire life. To just be soft and worry about other people's opinions. Oh, they're going to think I'm this and that. Who cares? Did they heal you? Did they die for you? Are you going to answer them on the last day? Why are you so worried about what other people are going to think of you? Why are you worried about what I'm going to think of you? I'll tell you something right now. I promise you, if you were blind, there's nothing I could do for you. Don't worry about any human being as to what their opinion is of you. And if you grew up being left out, overlooked all the time, it may be that there is a hidden genius behind why God made you the way that he made you. This guy's looking these dudes in the eye and say, I have zero fear of you guys. I already told you, it's like the ninth time I've told you people 
and I'm tired of it. You know, I brought my daughter to the hospital and you're eyeing with different hospitals and all that. And you know how they're always like little key trying to find out if you're an abusive parent. So they'll be like, oh, sweetie, what happened to your eye? And then they'll say, well, you know, I was going to the dog and, oh, okay. Then another doctor comes five minutes later. What happened to your eye? And she'll look at me. So this dude got tired of answering all the questions. He's like, do you want to become one of his disciples too? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple. He never said that. <clears throat> Actually, he might, he might have said that, actually, because he said, do you also want to become one of his disciples? So maybe, now he's like, the questioning and the persecution is like pushing him onto Jesus' side. Maybe, we'll go with that one. They said to him, you are his disciple, we're disciples of Moses. We're disciples of Moses. You go be a disciple of Jesus. Which, of course, is a lie. Because if they truly were disciples of Moses, they would have been disciples of Jesus. Jesus said that in John chapter 5. He says, Moses wrote of me. As a matter of fact, he says, if you would have believed Moses, you would have believed me, but you can't believe in me because you didn't believe Moses. And what does Jesus mean by that? They added so many laws that they created their own religion and just stuffed Moses into their own religion so that Moses became a disciple and a servant of them. So they would create their own laws. You can't make mud. And then they would use Moses to, to speak their law. So they weren't disciples of Moses. We are disciples of Moses. Verse 29. We know. Here's again what they, what they know. We know that God has spoken to Moses but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. The man answered, well, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. What a brilliant, brilliant argument. Jesus sent this dude into conflict with these religious experts and completely destroy their arguments. These guys went to school 14, 15,000 years. He annihilates them. You see, when you have Jesus, you have Christ, and you know what he did, you don't need to be a giant Bible scholar to be a witness. What has Jesus done in your life? Has he done anything in your life? That's all you need. I'm not saying don't study and become a woman. What I'm saying is to go out into the public square. All you need is your testimony, a little bit of a spine, and confident in the fact that Jesus is who he said he was. That's all you need. You don't need everything else. Now, how do they respond? How does a repentant person respond? Notice he says, not since the world began. You know what he means by that? You guys are talking about how awesome Moses is. Moses never healed somebody born blind. This guy did. Never since the beginning of the world. Moses, Elijah, nobody has heard of in the Old Testament of healing somebody born blind. They answered him. Now look, he says, 
If he were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? Now, how do they know he was born in utter sin? Remember the debate at the beginning, who sinned this guy? You already know what side they were on in the debate. They said, ah, now we know. You're the one that sinned. Notice, there were two candidates for who the bad guy was. Remember, it was his parents, or it was him, right? How do they know that it was his fault? You know why? Because the parents agreed with them and followed their little rules, and he didn't. So you must be the bad guy. This is how we are. Somebody is bad because they're, they disagree with us. Somebody is bad because they, they, they don't follow us and how we do things, or they're not intimidated by our little control mechanisms. That means they're bad. They're not letting us control them. They must be bad. Must be bad people. They said, you were born in utter sin. Now, is that true? Was he born in utter sin? Yes. <laughs> Psalm 151. No, Psalm 51 tells us, I was conceived in sin. All of us were born in sin. So they were telling a true statement of the man, but here's the difference. They were saying that as if he was born in sin and that they weren't. All of us were born in utter sin. What they were saying is, you are particularly born in sin, and so therefore you have no right to teach us anything. You, can you learn from other people? Or is there only like three people that you'll learn from? Oh, I got a Bible question. Got a Bible question. Who text Maddie? Like me. Maddie. Ask Maddie. You can't learn anything from anyone else. These Pharisees couldn't learn anything from this guy. They were so full of pride. And they knew he was a beggar. It must have been in him. They couldn't learn a thing from this guy. They wouldn't stop and say, well, man, man, wait a second here. Didn't even cross their mind. So they cast him out. Get out of here. The guy goes, I don't care. You guys don't seem like good company anyway. That's not the Bible, but I mean, verse 35, Jesus heard that they cast him out and having found him. See, Jesus is inquiring about, hey, how's that guy tonight? Or the disciples showed up and said, hey, you know that guy that you healed? Um, they keep him out. So Jesus takes time out of whatever he was doing to go seek this guy out. He said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he what? He worshipped him. He knelt before him and worshipped him. This guy went from the man that they called Jesus to, I don't really know who he is, to he's a prophet, to he's a worshipper of God, to he is somebody that deserves worship. See this guy's progression? He progressed in faith. And it was until after Jesus put him in conflict with those guys, as the guy began to speak, his faith in Christ actually grew, oddly enough. Because initially he was saying, the man they called Jesus. And then he was like, oh, he's a prophet. Because they were going back and forth against this guy who healed them, and he started getting defensive on behalf of Jesus, and it was a very conflict that brought faith into the man's heart. 
And Jesus finds him. And at the end of that conflict, that's when he gives him perfect faith. I believe. And look what Jesus says. For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who, who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Meaning, if you were blind and you were helpless, and if you came to me as a blind, helpless person, you would have no sin, because I would heal you. Like this guy. This guy came to me completely and totally helpless. And he did anything I told him to do. Because that's the, that's the, the mentality of a person who's actually born in spirit. But because you guys are so prideful, you don't need anything, and you can see, and you can see on your own, now you stay in your guilt. Why did God make this man blind from his birth? One, to give witness to the entire surrounding community of the power of Jesus to heal somebody. Two, to give him the emotional fortitude to be able to stand for the truth, even if it meant being cast outside of the city, cast outside of the synagogue, and even cast out again by his parents. This dude was used to being rejected. When you grow up in life, you face all these rejections in your life, there's a reason for every single episode of rejection you've ever had in your life. We look at this guy, and he's doing something that two-thirds of us could not have done because we're so afraid of being rejected. What if you embrace all the rejection you've ever faced in your life to say, God, you were, you were exercising that muscle so that I could go out and be a witness to you. What if you looked at it as something God was doing for you instead of what people were doing to you? Everything that's ever happened was done for you. And, here's the kicker, not just for you, but for the people around you. God afflicted this one guy for the sake of that entire village and the sake of those nasty Pharisees. You realize this? In God's love, he afflicted this guy so that he could go and bear witness to those Pharisees in court. There are certain things that happened in Brian's life that conspired to make him the type of man that will stand outside of the sidewalk and then stand in a courtroom and declare the gospel in a courtroom. That didn't happen out of nowhere. Like it didn't matter. God didn't zap him with that. No, God was building that in him from his birth. That there are certain things where <laughs> I saw Jeremy up there in the, in the, in the thing, and the way he was answering the Lord's questions. <laughs> And that there were certain things in his life that made him the type of man that could handle that situation. Whatever God has planned for you, all of it, the physical pain, the social pain, the rejection, the feeling like an outsider, the never being accepted, all of it, all of it, every pain in body, soul, and spirit, God is using it for his glory, your good, and the good of those around you. And he will heal you for your good, but also the good of those around you. Don't, don't steal your healing. 
And I, I was hanging out, you know, I was having a conversation with somebody else. I was like discouraged, but I was spiritualizing my discouragement. And I was like, yeah, you know, like throw the old throw, you know, walk into the thing, but he had a scar for the rest of his life. And I was like, you know, and they were like, you're going to be healed. And the Lord was like, you're going to be healed, Andrew. Just, I was like, all right, you're going to be healed. Good. Don't steal your healing when he heals you. Share it. Share your healing. God didn't just heal, he's not going to just heal you for you. If he doesn't heal you on this side of the resurrection, it's for your own good and the good of those around you. And if he heals you at this side of the resurrection, it's for your own good and those around you. You understand that? Do you? Say yes. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this man who you never named, but you know very well that you made <laughs> unusually and separately. And, and God, we see his character, we see his personality come out, God, and, and uh, we know, Holy Spirit, that when you were recording this, you were smiling at this man. And God, you do that with all of us. God, I pray that we would remember these things, and I pray, God, that we would use that we would begin to ask the right questions, Lord, as to why we're in the situation that we're in. Not to blame anyone, God. I pray that we would extend the hand of forgiveness, God, that we would open our hands and release bitterness, God, and that we would just begin to pursue you and your purposes as to why we are the way that we are, God. God, I pray that you forgive us all of our sins and lead us in the way of everlasting. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this resource from Cell 53, Proclaiming the Kingdom of God for the Sake of the City. For more resources, visit cell53.com.